Geneva College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Monday afternoon, December 6, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Part 2, The New Testament, Blakelock, Archaeology in the New Testament, Chapter 8, pages 109 to 116, uh, Archaeology and the Epistles. Now, I take it you're all familiar with the art of letter writing. I had a young lady in the classroom, Bible 101. I thought she was assiduously taking notes on my lecture. She was certainly writing an awful lot of stuff, and then reached down her handbag and got out an envelope and some stamps and put a stamp on it and put it in the envelope and sealed it. And I thought, hear me, this is the ultimate. She's uh, so taken with my lecture, she's sending it to her mother to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say we put the best possible construction on it. At least I couldn't prove that it was not going to be metal. Now, uh, this uh, deals with the New Testament epistles and shows what archaeology has done to throw some light on it. This chapter is, thank you, fairly short here, and if you get finished, I'll read you a piece from um, uh, Martin's book here on the intercept of St. Paul. And starting with um, this. Yep, right too. This is from last time, huh? 92, 93. How did Ramsey solve this Galatian problem? What is the bearing of this solution on the trustworthiness of the book of Acts? Now, first place, what is the Galatian problem? Before you can say how he solved it, you got to know what the problem is. What is it, Mr. Betty, the Galatian problem? Well, what we just said is that the churches of Galatia were located in northern Texas, the country, and other states, they were located. Yeah. Uh, just a minute, let's see. He made discoveries which proved that the Galatian region referred to in the book of Acts was this in South Galatia. He found numerous inscriptions there, and uh, among others, one dedicated to Jupiter and Hermes, mentioned in connection with the Paul and Barnabas' trip, and uh, another, uh, several, uh, quite a number of inscriptions of early Christianity there, and the inscriptional remains, chiefly inscriptions that Ramsey found, just about filled this up, that uh, this must have been the region that was, to which the Epistle of the Galatians was written, and this, therefore, shows that the account in the book of Acts is trustworthy and not a late 2nd century um, fabrication as claimed by some people. And um, that's 92. Now, 93, what inscriptions have been discovered that apparently mention Sergius Paulus, Governor Cyprus, and Demetrius, an opponent of Paul? This is in the book on page 101. Uh, question 93 here. Uh, in uh, Cyprus, two inscriptions referring to a son and a daughter of this man, Sergius Paul. Now, he is mentioned in the book of Acts as the governor there when Paul and uh, Paul and uh, 
Charles, we're visiting here. Let's see just a minute now, and I'll show you where this is.
The letters of both Romans survive in their own right as literature. The surprise of the papyri has been the vast extent of ancient literacy and the volume of everyday correspondence between private persons on all manner of subjects of daily interest. The letters of the New this is of interest to us as Bible students because it is shown that the New Testament epistles belong to this class of literature, that these are not literary treatises, but are comparable to the letters used by people of that time and written back and forth in common life, both the language and the style, that of common life, rather than that of um, somebody writing a PhD thesis or something like that. And um, he says the, the, the times, the New Testament epistles touched the heights of literary power, but their prime object was to communicate truth. And this they did in the language of the common people, which people would hear gladly. And so uh, it has shown the class of writing to which the letters of Paul, Peter, John, Jude, and James belong. Now this involves also the kind of kind of Greek in which the New Testament is written. Uh, it is markedly different from classical Greek. The Greek of the New Testament is decidedly different from Jonathan and Homer and uh, Herodotus and Aristotle, Plato, and other Greek writers. And uh, until the papyrus manuscripts were discovered, the New Testament was the only example of this different kind of Greek. And there was a theory which was widely held a hundred years ago that the New Testament was written in what was called Holy Ghost Greek. Uh, that the Holy Spirit had specially inspired the writers to write in a different kind of Greek, otherwise unknown. So this was called Holy Ghost Greek. Uh, because it was the only collection of specimens of its kind, and there was nothing anywhere else to compare it with. And the idea was supposed to be that the standard Greek was sort of profane and pagan, you know, and so the Holy Spirit inspired Paul and Luke and these other writers to write in a um, special kind of Greek, and this was limited to inspired scripture. Now, that's an interesting and rather bizarre theory, but it has completely been born into a cocked hat and abandoned by the discovery of the papyrus manuscripts, of which there are thousands in the same kind of Greek as the New Testament. And if you're a student of Greek, as I said, and put all of you are, in the K-O-I-N-E, which means new. And this is the kind of Greek that the New Testament nearly all of this is written in. Blakelock says, Luke starts out his gospel with a couple of sentences in rather intelligent classical Greek, and then right away after this little introduction, he lapses into the language of common people, called Koine, New kind of Greek. This was the Greek, not a learned book, and educated philosophers and dramatists, but uh, of the man in the street kind of Greek that ordinary people used to spoke Greek and the kind of Greek that they wrote ordinary letters in about ordinary things. And it surprised some people to find the New Testament was written in this and 
that these deviations from standard classical Greek were not the results of ignorance or lack of culture or anything like that, but that this was intentional, that this was simply writing in the language of the common people of the day for the sake of better communication. Now, um, even though they have literary power at times, now, in the book here, there's a, an interesting sample here. Theon writes to his daughter. What did you think of this letter? How old do you suppose Theon was? Well, I doubt if he was too old to be spanked, and I think maybe he should have been. But uh, did you read this letter of Theon to his daughter? Is he, uh, well, how would you say? Say, Theon, poor boy. Is he, uh, Rested with his father and making improper demands. What, what's the matter? Why did he write this letter? Well, Mr. Harris, why did Theon write to his father? Uh, he was uh, in the first place mad because his father went to Alexandria without taking him. Yeah, well, right. Well, right. <laughs> Okay, and uh, you notice he says, if you don't do this or that, I'll never speak to you again, and so forth, this kind of language. And then he ends up, there now, I pray for your help. I read about a kid who was very young, about eight, maybe going to leave home and go away, and wrote a note to his mother, Dear Mom, I hate you. I'm going to run away from home. Please put me up a real nice lunch. Lots of love, Billy. And uh, maybe this is a little something like that. Now you notice this this is not the rewriting of this. This is a phrase by phrase translation of this papyrus letter. You did a fine thing, not taking me with you to town. If you won't take me with you to Alexandria, I won't write your letter or speak to you or wish you a good day. And if you do go to Alexandria, I won't hold you again or speak to you ever again. Uh, this is uh, sort of modern. But it's certainly not the way children ought to speak to their parents. And uh, then uh, he quotes his mother this thing, she upsets me. Take him away. And uh, it was nice of you to send me presents, send me a wire, please do. He wants a musical instrument. If you don't, I won't eat and I won't drink. Now, uh, Evidently, there's nothing new under the sun. There were kids like this today, and there were kids like this at that time. Who saw this? Crowds of the parents that kids get like this. Mrs. Johnson? That parents every time, for sure. But I tell you, the one in exchange, the column in the paper, he, some mother wrote in and said, What can I do with a child like this? I tell you, she had a company dinner, and a big terrine full of mashed potatoes with butter melting on top, and her little daughter, age four, got up on the edge of the table and got both hands in there like that and got it out and squeezed. <laughs> and the mother said, what can I do with a child like that? And Clint said, I know exactly what to do with a child like that. <laughs> well, this is uh, showing you the uh, colloquial and uh, in the way, the modern way of speaking. And he signs his name Theonis, that's a pet name. That's like saying Billy instead of William, or Jimmy instead of James. 
you think still loving his friends in spite of the fact that he talked this way about them. He probably talked like this uh, a good bit of the time. Now then, um, uh, another one here, a neglected little lad named Sonos, page 111. To my Lord and Father Aaron from Sonos, greetings. I pray for you every day. Look, this is my fifth letter to you. And you have written to me only once. Or have you come to see me? You promised me saying I'm coming, but you have not come. Find out whether my teacher is looking after me or not. And he himself asks every day, saying, Isn't he coming yet? And I just say yes. Try then to come quickly, that he may teach me as he really wants to do. And when you come, remember what I have often written to you about. Goodbye, my Lord and Father. May God prosper you many years with my brother whom may the evil eye or not. Remember my pigeon. To Arian from Thomas. Apparently when he went away to school, he left his pigeons in the care of his parents. And they promised to take care of them and he just mentioned this. Remember my pigeons. A very homelike little touch. And then uh, here's another one then. The father uh, writes to the son, apparently worried about money, page 111. And uh, the uh, <coughs> son replies and addresses his dad as very sweetest father. I pray for you every day as a local deity. Do not be worried, father, about my faith. I am working hard and taking relaxation. What does that mean? Well, this is apparently a, um, a nice way of saying something that he didn't want to write explicit, which he has, probably, or uh, in bad company or sometimes, taking relaxation. It will be all right with me. I greet my mother. I let her proceed for half a dozen lines with enthusiastic greetings, friends and relatives, a safer subject. Aurelia Senior would doubtless have preferred some assurance about the relaxation. And now there was a college fellow telegraphed his father. <clears throat> no mine, no son, your son. And the Western Union promptly brought the reply, how bad, too sad, how sad, too bad, you're dead. <laughs> so this is that type of correspondence. Now here's one on the middle of page 112. This is really sad and tragic. A man away from home writing to his wife and he endearingly calls his sister. Blakeoff points out that marriage to your sister was legal in Egypt, but um, this does not imply necessarily that this man uh, admired his sister, but uh, this was simply a term of endearment. And then um, what's the point or the main uh, point of interest for us in this letter from Hilarion to Ellis, uh, Alice's sister. What's he write to her? So she's expecting the birth of a baby. I've already gotten one. Take care of that. What about when this other one is born, Mr. Brown? Yeah. And uh, Blakelock marveled at this, that a letter so filled with the uh, Honey, honey, lovey, dovey language and everything as this was could mention such a horrible deed. It's a murder, of course. So this girl, if not 
Um, if she wouldn't perish of hunger and exposure, she'd be picked up by unscrupulous persons and raised to be a prostitute. And uh, that this man, the comment on the Times, that a person could write a letter like this with all that domestic and affectionate language and then say a thing like that. When the baby is born, if it's a girl, cast it out, the boy is still alive. Let me tell you, this kind of conduct of sin, let's say, was terribly common. It is, even is today in some parts of the Eastern Hemisphere, but terribly common. The Chinese came to me and confessed. He said he had no peace and his conscience was terribly violent. He couldn't sleep. And he finally came up with this. His wife had given birth to a baby girl and he had strangled it and buried it secretly. And after this, he uh, was converted to be a Christian, and this bothered him. He thought he could never go to heaven and he could never forget that deed. And I comforted him and told him that even that God could forgive. But uh, you see, the, the reflection of the kind of society that Christians came from, this was in China, but the same kind of thing in the Roman Empire. Now, uh, so much for these various letters. The next thing, the professional or the subject, the range and format, um, the professional letter writer or scribe. Question 100. Why would people use a scribe to write their letters? Mr. Harris? Well, this would be in some cases people couldn't write. In, in China, you'll see a post office, which when I was there, and little old cabins down the street from it, with half a dozen or ten maybe. With professional letter writers. You're going to tell them who you're writing to and what you want to say, and they write the letter from the coffee shop. You're paying 20 cents maybe for writing the letter for you. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one explanation. Another is that um, people felt that letters had to be in a certain form, and the professional letter writer was the one who knew how to do this. So a scribe was commonly used to write letters from dictation, even when the sender of the letter could have written it himself. And we know that some of Paul's epistles mention a scribe at the end who uh, wrote the epistle, and evidently Paul dictated it. Now that is with regards to the scribe. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul says, You see, in how large letters or characters I've written to you in my own hand. This has been thought by some people to mean um, Paul had eye trouble and um, was very nearsighted and couldn't to write ordinary letters. I had to get the picture right up in front of his eyes like this to write, and therefore writing large letters. Another explanation suggested is that um, it was on a tough and cheaper kind of papyrus and uh, difficult to write any kind of neat, small writing neatly unless you were very expert at it, and therefore he wrote in large letters. The bulk of the epistle, evidently, having been dictated by Paul and written down by an assistant, and then Paul authenticates it with a few words at the end and his name in large letters. Now, um, so much for the um, need for a scribe. 101, the limitations of stylistic criticism and what fact impresses us with these limitations. Uh, if you were going to have a letter, suppose you were a successful business executive making a million dollars a year and had an office secretary you could tell your secretary, write to um, 
General Motors Corporation and tell them so and so. And you wouldn't need to dictate everything in the letter. If your secretary was any good, he or she could write it up and get it across in proper form without you having to say, Dear sir, uh, we have received your letter of the 14th instant and so forth. This would not be necessary. And so um, this would account for some differences in phraseology. Now, it is noteworthy in the New Testament, you can see it in English, but much more in Greek. First and Second Peter, the two epistles differ markedly in style. Second Peter is harder to read in Greek than First Peter. You can read First Peter without a pony, if you're used to the English Bible. Second Peter, you're constantly, at least I am, checking it up by the English to see, because it's the more difficult you start. And critics have jumped on this and say, okay, Peter wrote first Peter, and nobody knows who wrote second Peter, but it wasn't Peter. It's announced in the book, therefore, to be uh, not genuine and not authentic. Now, would the difference in style like this militate against the, the genuineness or authentic character of the book? Well, uh, who would be the author, the scribe or the, or the person who dictated it, Mr. Bates? Well, two different scribes, but the author is the man from whom the thoughts or ideas came. And this does not concern the inspiration of the Bible. Inspiration would cover the whole business, not only the dictating, but also the writing of the scribe under supervision of the person who did the dictating, Mr. Brown. I thought that was going to be possible to circles were inspired. Well, the writings of the apostles. The writings that are inspired and the writings that Paul are Paul's writings, even though he dictated it and um, let's say John Mark uh, or somebody wrote it down, and then Paul would certainly read it over and, and approve it or check anything in it, you see. So this would still be his writing. And this, this means that um, the, the writings of the apostles or their immediate associates are inspired and belong in the canon over against things not connected with the apostles or from a later time. But this does not mean that for it to be inspired, Paul had to hold the pen in his own hand and write it. What he dictated is a faithful reproduction of what he said, and later, no doubt, checked and approved by him, is inspired just the same as if he had actually written it with his own hand. Now, uh, this would account for the difference in style. Also, um, there is a theory that the book of Hebrews is translated into Greek from an Aramaic original, which is unlikely because Hebrews is among the finest Greek in the New Testament and doesn't read like a translated book. But um, it is possible that, well, it is held that um, the Gospel of Matthew as we have it, I had an argument with a Jesuit priest on the bus in Kansas about this. He finally asked me if I was a member of the clergy, and I admitted as I was. But um, whether Matthew was originally written in Aramaic or in Greek, and he said that St. Jerome said it was written in Hebrew, meaning by that Aramaic. And I said, yes, I know about St. Jerome too, but as far as I know, St. Jerome didn't claim to have seen this. He reported this. There was such a belief in his day. That Matthew was written for the Jews by Matthew in Hebrew or Aramaic and then translated into Greek so that we have it in Greek in our New Testament. 
There is no evidence, nobody ever found a copy of Matthew, an ancient copy, in another language than Greek. So the Greek book of Matthew is all we got. But this would be possible. Now, the sayings of Jesus, who spoke Aramaic all the time, or nearly all the time, are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes the same saying of Jesus is recorded in our Greek New Testament in slightly different words in Matthew from Lovers and Luke. This does not mean that it isn't inspired or that the Bible isn't infallible, but simply that that saying in Aramaic could correctly be translated in more than one way in Greek. Now I could say here, I've got the four gallons of gasoline in my car. Or I could say I've got 16 quarts of gasoline. Now those are different words, but it means exactly the same thing, doesn't it? And um, so this um, discovery of all these papyrus manuscripts and the fact that um, it was the common thing to use a professional scribe and dictate, and he writes, and you can check it over from what I have to do, this would explain stylistic differences in, let's say, one of Paul's epistles and another. So if you would have a different style, maybe in Ephesians from the epistle of Titus, let's say. And this would explain this on a satisfactory basis without undermining or undercutting the and that is a part of the inspired word of God. Now, um, this therefore, this the whole consideration of stylistic criticism that goes back to the papyrus manuscripts tends to confirm belief in the genuineness and trustworthiness of the New Testament over against modern liberal critics who are ready in a very hasty manner to pronounce something not genuine because it's um, different in style from something else written by the same author. Incidentally, um, it has been claimed that um, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address could not have been written by Lincoln because it is different in style from one of his campaign speeches when he was running for president. Uh, how mechanical this is. And the latest... Uh, gimmick about the stylistic criticism is to use a computer and they uh, put down all the words Paul used and uh, they find that uh, certain words occur many times in the epistle to the Romans and uh, these same words not at all or maybe just once or twice in the first and second Corinthians therefore the same man couldn't have written them both get this all computerized and figure out by computer which 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 epistles are genuine and which are forced? Now I, I wonder, do you believe in computers, Mr. Donaldson? You don't believe in them, right. <laughs> Mr. Brown, you believe in computers? Not for that. Not for that. All right, what's the matter with that method? Well, saying the man vocabulary is static. It never changed. He might have just had no occasion to use these certain particular words. Also. You see, this consideration that Blakelock brings up might account for it. Uh, he might have used a different scribe to write it down and given the general ideas and, and told them to describe or maybe dictated, but not filled in every part of every sentence, but, but approved it when it was done. And the different scribes, so we've got several different ones at different times in Paul's life, for instance, that just did this, would write according to their knowledge of Greek and their background, and it could be equally correct. 
as a translation of what Paul had to say, and yet stylistically different. And when you feed this into the computer, it goes haywire. Because this assumes that if the style is different, the authorship must be different. Now, I'll credit Abraham Lincoln with a different style at different times in his life. And, um, well, the same is true of any of us, of course. Now then, um, war, uh, rather, 102. What have the discovered papyri shown concerning the kind of Greek language used in the New Testament epistles? Paul and the other New Testament writers of epistles used the vernacular or common language of the day, commonly called koine, I read up there. The speech of daily life, not that of the ancient classics. And now there are in 103 and 104 here several examples in 105 of um, where the papyrus discoveries have thrown light on the proper meaning of a word. Now, let me get the real flow down here. How many have studied Greek here? Mr. Brown? Mr. Jennison, Mr. Fady only? The rest of you got to take this on faith? I looked all these words up in the Greek New Testament and laid them down in the Greek in the book. Let's see, let's learn the Greek and the English up there for you. Uh, the first one is uh, what is for Shown to uh, 
be a word used in the prepared document for Elohim. Title deeds is things hoped for. Got the faith, we're going to get the things. Title deeds is things hoped for. And another one, uh, Philippians 3 8. Translated first fruits in the King James Version. 
And this has been found in numerous cases in papyrus documents and letters to mean that legacy duty be demanded for citizenship and in one place birth certificate. You might wonder how it could have all those names, but it is so used. And uh, this uh, is uh, quoted from Romans 8.23, a kind of first group, because the Christian has a birth certificate uh, from the Holy Spirit. This is a metaphor, of course. All right, so two or three more here. Captain in Hebrews 2.10, Archangel. Someday. Well, that's good. Um, you know, there's a little book, Teach Yourself New Testament Greek. Have you seen that? Yeah, well, that's, you can get that for Dawn Porter and the Teach Yourself New Testament Greek with practically no effort. All you've got to do is to sweat through about 200 hours of it. <laughs> you have no excuse in there. Okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> we'll stop there for today.